Father, we pray that over our lives and over this church, we want everything we do in our daily lives and everything we do as a church to be guided by you. As we show up here this morning and as we sing and as we pray, we want you to be guiding all of that. And, and even now, Lord, as we come to your word, we're, we come to your word because we know we need your guidance. We need your wisdom. And so we ask that, that you would speak to us now from your word and that you'd speak clearly and powerfully to each one of us. And anything that may distract us, any fears or frustrations or anger, Lord, that you would wipe that away and that you would, um, anything that may hinder us from hearing you speak and that you would speak clearly um, to each one of us. Father, we pray that you would open our ears to hear, our eyes to see, and our hearts to receive what you have to say to us this morning. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, we're continuing through Ruth, and so if you've got your Bibles with you, go ahead and open them up to Ruth chapter 2, and we're looking at just the last few verses of Ruth chapter 2, otherwise they will be up on the screen as well. Ruth carried it back to town, this bundle of barley. She carried it back to town, and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after what she had eaten. Her mother-in-law asked, Where did you glean today? Where, Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother in law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter in law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. He's one of our kinsmen, redeemers. Then Ruth the Moabite said, he even said to me, stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the girls who work for him because in someone else's field you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the servant girls of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvests were finished, and she lived with her mother-in-law. So after we accepted a call to come to this church, which seems like years and years ago, but it was actually, actually, Almost three years ago exactly this weekend is when we came to interview here. Isn't that kind of weird to think about? Three years ago exactly this weekend is when we interviewed. But after we received the call to come here, we had quite a journey trying to find a house because the market was crazy. Um, Houses were selling in just a couple of days. And so the first time we came out to try to find a house, We had given the realtor, I think, 10 or maybe even 12 houses we wanted to look at. And by the time we got here, there were four left. Maybe five. Not very many. We even had once where a house popped up on a Saturday. I called our realtor on Saturday and said, I'm going to drive out on Monday to look at it. And it sold on Sunday. Um, And we had one day in that process that was probably the most uh, disappointing of all. Uh, 
Um, things had kind of been building up. Our deadline had passed. We kind of knew that by this, if we want to be able to move out there and move into a house, our house had to sell by this time. We had to have an offering on a house by this time, and that had gone by already. So we knew that there was going to be, we we're going to have to stay with somebody or figure some kind of temporary housing out. Um, and so kind of a last-ditch effort, we called out to our realtor. We lined up six houses to look at. We were going to drive out in the morning, look at six houses, and then drive six hours back in the evening. Um, and by the time we got out, there were, out of the six houses we wanted to look at, we were really only interested in two. By the time we got out here, three of them had sold. Um, one of the ones that we were interested in sold, and the other one, when we looked at it, was not what it looked like in the pictures. <laughs> and we were no longer interested in it. Um, but since we had driven six hours, we were like, well, we'll look at these other two, even though we're not really interested in them. And then we had this painful six-hour drive back home, <laughs> um, where it was, you know, usually a family of six in the car, it's never quiet. Um, it was six hours of silence. Everybody was just quiet because just the weight of it all was bearing down. How, are, you know, you're kind of, are we ever going to find a place? And is our house ever going to sell? I mean, the market was hot in Minnesota and our house had been on the market for a while. We had only had a couple of showings and we thought, man, our house is never going to sell. We're never going to find a place out there. And it was depressing. But here's what we didn't know. On this, so that was a Saturday. Um, what we didn't know was only, we had only had a couple of showings, but one couple was working on financing Saturday. And on Sunday, the very next day after we thought this is never going to happen, we received an offer at our asking price the very next day. And uh, also, one of the houses we looked at on that very depressing day is the house we're living in today which has been a perfect fit for our family. And, uh, and so in the midst of all of this, right, we thought nothing was going to happen. This is never, you know, it's all terrible. And God was kind of giggling, saying, just wait till tomorrow. Everything's going to change. Um, but what I was thinking about in this process, because it's really funny to me to think that we looked at the house that we're living in now and we're like, nah, we're not interested. Because it's a great place, and it's like perfect for our family. And, and even uh, just a couple of weeks ago, I was going through my journals, and uh, when you start looking for a house, you start figuring out what would be the perfect place for us. You start writing things down. And I read through it, and I went, oh, this describes our house. So why weren't we interested in it? And there's a couple of reasons for it. I mean, even when we bought the house, it was kind of like, a, I guess it'll work. You know, we'll just do it. And so I'm like, okay, what was going on? And I think there's a lot of things going on, but one of the things that jumped out at me recently was we don't always see things as clearly as we think we do, especially when we're in the period of being frustrated, down in the dumps, grieving a little bit, maybe just even exhausted. And so this was the last house we had looked at after the day. We were just done. And we just kind of walked through it and like, this doesn't fit either. And we went home. And another way to say that is we, we don't see things very clearly when things aren't going the way we think they should be going. 
And so, well, if things were going this way, then it would make sense. But things aren't going this way, so nothing makes sense. And so we have this tendency to just get blinded in the midst of it. And, and one of the interesting things is we, we see this happen in the book of Ruth. And in Naomi's life in particular. And so I want to rewind a little bit and go back to chapter 1 and look at a couple of things that Naomi said in chapter 1. And ask, is that really true? So she returns back to Bethlehem and she says, I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. And you think, okay, she lost her husband, she lost her sons. That's true, right? Except for she had somebody else standing right next to her <laughs> when she said it, didn't she? She had Ruth standing, uh, this Ruth, right? This woman who just told her, where you go, I'm going to go. Where you stay, like, you're not getting rid of me. <laughs> if you die, I'm going to be there. I'm going to die in the same place you are. Your people are going to be my people. Your God is going to be my God. I'm committed. I'm here. And Naomi's blind to it. She says, I've got nothing. I've got no one. Because we don't always see things clearly. When, when we're grieving or when we're frustrated or when we're depressed or when we're tired. And, and even if you think back to what she had said before that as she's traveling down the road with, with Ruth and, and Orpah, she tells Ruth and Orpah to go back home. And why does she tell them to go back home? There's no hope for you in Bethlehem. There's nothing in Bethlehem for you. If you go to Bethlehem, you're going to grow up. You're going to be an old widow who has nothing. You can't. You're going to have to try to eke out a living on your own. There's just, there's nothing for you in Bethlehem. And we ask, is that true? No. Boaz is there. And actually, as, as the author tells the story, most likely Boaz and Naomi's husband were not, they were close relatives. They like knew each other. Naomi knew Boaz beforehand, but in the midst of her grief and in the midst of all of that, she just wasn't seeing things clearly. And yet, we get to this point in the story at the end of chapter 2, and God starts working um, to open Naomi's eyes to actually both of these things. And it begins with Ruth coming home, remember, with this big bundle of barley, on her back, right? At minimum 30 pounds, like a half a month's worth of barley. And she comes walking in and it says she took it up. She went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left after being satisfied. You know, so you get this picture of Ruth having this huge bundle on her back and come trudging down the road and, and Naomi sees her and goes, whoa, what just happened? And Ruth comes in and she sets the big bag of barley on there and, and Naomi's still trying to kind of figure out what just happened. How in the world did she get that? And then Ruth pulls out another surprise and says, oh yeah, here's some leftovers from lunch. Some roasted grain and some bread and some vinegar. Here's some more food that I got. <laughs> and Naomi's in shock, right? That's where some of this re repetition is there. Where, where did you glean today? Where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. It's kind of like the author puts this repetition in there, just like this stuttering of excitement. Have you ever seen someone who's like, wait, what, where, how, who, where were you? Who did, who did you run into today? How in the world? And, 
And as she's asking these questions, she's in shock, but her eyes are starting to be opened. There's all of a sudden this big pile of blessing in front of her, and her eyes are starting to open that God's maybe doing something here. And she's beginning to see, maybe I didn't see things accurately. And then it gets even better, right? Because she's asking all these questions, and, and then Ruth starts to answer them, right? And Ruth has no idea the significance of what she's about to say. And so I just kind of picture Ruth sitting there munching on some roasted grain and saying, I don't know, some guy named Boaz. (laughs) And Naomi goes, jaw hits the floor. (laughs) And she goes, whoa. And it's at this point that her eyes get opened in a big, big way. And we see that she says, she says, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. But notice there's a difference here. When, she, when Ruth first comes home with this pile of barley on her back, she says, blessed be the man who took notice of you. It's almost like this, like if you've ever met a good southern woman, she'll be like, oh, bless your heart. Right? Kind of this like just generic blessing, like, oh, bless you. And it's kind of just like thanks, right? And she's like, oh, man, bless that, whoever helped you. But when she hears the name Boaz, then she says, may he be blessed by the Lord. And you can see all of a sudden she, there's, there's a switch. It's not just some generic blessing that she's talking about. She's beginning to realize that blessing is coming from the Lord. And that if Boaz is going to receive blessing, Boaz is going to receive that blessing from the Lord. And if Ruth is going to receive blessing, she's going to receive that from the Lord. And then ultimately, if Naomi is going to receive blessing, she's going to receive it from the Lord as well. But she says more than that. So she says, may he be blessed by the Lord. But then she says, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Now, depending on what translation you read, you don't always notice that there's a difficulty here. But in this translation, you can see it. Whose kindness is she talking about? Whose kindness is not forsaken the living or the dead? Is it Boaz's kindness or is it the Lord's kindness? Right? You don't know. And uh, I spent a lot of time reading commentaries this week. And guess what? Even the smartest people trying to figure this out they don't know either. You can look at the grammatical stuff. You can compare it to other, picture, other passages in the Bible. And uh, you can make an argument both ways that she's talking about Boaz's kindness or talking about the Lord's kindness. And, and, and in the end, you don't really know. And I think the author did it on purpose. Because it's both, isn't it? Um, it's the same thing I mentioned last week. If you, if you ask, okay, who is showing kindness to Ruth and Naomi? Is it Boaz or is it the Lord? And you say, both. The Lord is showing kindness to Ruth and Naomi, and he's doing it through the kindness of Boaz. And so the author likes to do this. The author likes to throw some ambiguous things in there. Um, and he's intentionally saying, The Lord and Boaz are showing kindness here. They're not forsaking the living or the dead. And here's why I think this is really powerful. Um, We have to do another flashback quick. So flashback to chapter 1. And Naomi kind of says a prayer and says a blessing over Ruth and Orpah. But just picture this being said over Ruth as well. 
She says, may the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. And so here they are traveling down the road and she's saying, all right, I'm praying a blessing over you. May the Lord deal kindly with you. And now a chapter later she says, the Lord is dealing kindly with you. As she sits there with her pile of barley and roasted grain in front of her, she says, my prayer was answered. I prayed that the Lord would deal kindly with you, and now I see that the Lord is dealing kindly with you. And as a result, with me, with with Naomi. But I think there's something even more powerful as we get into here, because the word kindly or the word kindness is a a really important word. In Hebrew, in order to say it, you have to you know, spit a little bit. It's chesed, chesed. And it's a word that's not typically translated kindness. Actually, like 75 or 80% of the time, it's translated steadfast love and faithfulness. And so if you're reading in the Psalms, you read of God's steadfast love and faithfulness, the same word. Or when, the, when God revealed his name to Moses in Exodus... A God of steadfast love and faithfulness. It's the same word. And so what's being talked about is God's steadfast love. It's a word that describes his covenant-keeping love. That God makes a covenant with his people and he doesn't break that love. He's steadfast in it. Or as I describe it sometimes, it's a a promise-keeping love. God makes a promise and he's going to keep that promise. And it's interesting because Naomi sees that in Ruth, right? God has dealt kindly, may God deal kindly with you because you have dealt kindly with me. And so she sees that Ruth has this promise-keeping love as well. So you go, I'm going to go. She's going to keep that promise. She's a covenant-keeping woman. She sees that in Boaz, that Boaz is a covenant-keeping man, that he's going to do what he's supposed to do for their Family, but ultimately through their, through the steadfast love and faithfulness of Ruth and through the steadfast love and faithfulness of Boaz, Naomi sees the steadfast love and faithfulness of God as God answers her prayers and keeps pouring out blessing on her. Um, but Naomi has more to say about this than just talking about God's steadfast love and faithfulness. She says, Well, this man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And the author, if you read it in certain translation, the author says, and Naomi said this, and then there's a break, and then there's, and Naomi said this. And so he's trying to make sure you see that she saw two different things. She saw the steadfast love and faithfulness of God, and now she's seeing that Boaz is one of the redeemers. And if you were watching this in a movie, you'd hear the music kind of building in the background, right? Because this is the turning point of the whole story. This is kind of the aha moment of the book of Ruth that Boaz is a close relative and he's a redeemer. And again, this is Naomi's eyes being opened, right? Because just a chapter later, Naomi said, there's no hope for us here. You're going to follow this old woman who can't provide for you, can't do anything for you. There's no one here to take care of you. And now she hears Boaz's name and she goes, Oh, I was wrong. He's a redeemer. 
And it's important to recognize that a redeemer had a lot of different roles. Um, and so we're really familiar with the book of Ruth. And so we think a redeemer is just someone who marries, you know, um, if, if, some, if their husband dies and he's a brother, he'll marry. We think of all of the marriage stuff. But the redeemer was a lot bigger role than that. Um, that at its core, a redeemer is someone who comes in and, and rescues someone out of a dangerous or harmful situation. And so as you read through the book of Leviticus, it'll talk about the Redeemer over and over again, helping out their family. And so they'll do things like they'll help buy and sell land for their family if they're in a rough situation. They help buy and sell land that way. Or, or people back then, if they couldn't pay a debt, they would, they would sell themselves into slavery and work off the debt. And, and a Redeemer would come in and help buy them out of that, pay off the debt for them and, and pull them out. Or... Or if somebody in their family had been hurt or wounded or stolen from, the Redeemer would come in and help um, seek restitution for them. Or they would even almost act like a lawyer in the court system. They'd come in and speak on behalf of this person. So it wasn't about marriage primarily. The Redeemer's primary role was making sure that family members, even extended family members, were cared for, they were protected, and they were provided for. And so I think at this point when Naomi says, he's one of our redeemers, um, the first few times I read that, you kind of think of this mom going like, uh-huh, he's a redeemer. And I don't think she's thinking marriage yet. I think Naomi at this point most likely is going, this is a close relative of ours, and he's got a commitment to helping provide for us and care for us. And that's a huge burden off of their back because now they have someone who's got a commitment to help pull them out of this dangerous or harmful situation that they're in. Which makes sense because Ruth goes in a different direction, right? The first time I read this, if Naomi is going like, you might be able to marry him, either Ruth changes the topic and doesn't want to talk about it. I don't think that's actually what's going on. Or Ruth just kind of out of the blue says, yeah, Besides, he said, you shall keep close by my young men until they've finished all the harvest. And so Naomi says, hey, we've got this guy. He's got a commitment to provide for us. And Ruth goes, oh, that makes sense because he told me I could stick in his field for, throughout the rest of the harvest. He told me not to go anywhere else but to stay in this field for the rest of the harvest, which was like two months long. And so you stick here in my field and you stay here for the next two months. And so Ruth goes, oh, it makes sense that he's, he's a redeemer for us. And it actually shows that Boaz already recognized that, right? Boaz, when he talked to Ruth earlier, he said, I know, I've seen what you've done for Naomi. I've watched you, and so I'm going to provide for you. And so he sees himself as a redeemer already. I'm going to step in, and I'm going to provide for you, and I'm going to care for you. And so you come into my field, you stay in my field, and you don't go anywhere else until the end. And I'm going to make sure you guys are taken care of. And he's generous, right? He still continues to be generous. He says, keep close by my young men until they've finished all the harvest. And remember what we talked about last week, that the the young men worked first, and they cut it, and then they put it down, and then the young women came by and bundled it up and put it into piles, and then the gleaners were supposed to be way, way behind all of them. And Boaz says, you just get right up there and work right amongst my workers. Don't hang back. You Just take, basically he's saying, 
take whatever you want or need and do it for the next two months. And so he has this generosity he keeps pouring out. But again, it shows this um, assurance for Ruth and Naomi. I mean, think about it. They, they went off to a land. They, they didn't know if they had anything. They had no idea how they were going to be provided for. And now, after watching, after finding out that Boaz was going to provide for them, they could kind of go, okay, we've got food. We don't have to worry about this anymore. We've got this. We don't have to live kind of hand to mouth. The Lord's going to keep providing for them. He's going to do it through Boaz. And this is, again, the Lord's going to keep showing his steadfast love and faithfulness. And it's interesting how Naomi responds. Because Naomi responds and says, It's good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. Notice the change? Boaz says, Hey, come into my field, go out, you just glean right amongst my young men. And Naomi says, Yeah, that's good that you stay by his young women. Hint, hint. And, uh, you know, she says, Lest you be assaulted in another field. So she already knows that if. I mean, it's still this way in the Dominican Republic. As they're harvesting sugarcane in the fields, there's a lot of not good things that happen to women in the, in the cane fields. And so it's a dangerous, very dangerous place to be. And so she says, yeah, stay by Boaz because he's, he's already said he's going to protect you. But then she says, but don't go with the men. Go, stay with the young women. And there's a lot of ways you can interpret that. Some have said that Naomi's trying to like, Stay away from the young men so you don't fall in love with anybody else. You've kind of stayed with... I think she's saying, don't overstay your welcome. Like Boaz says, you can work right amongst the young men. The gleaners are supposed to be back here. You just work amongst the women. Be happy with that. You can work right amongst the women. You'll get plenty of grain there. Don't overstay your welcome and then stick there for the next couple of months. And so, as we would expect, as we've seen Ruth's character... She listens. And it says she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests. And she lived with her mother-in-law. So we see Ruth going back to work, and she just kept at it for, they said normally seven weeks or two months is what the wheat and barley harvest was. And she just kept going back to Boaz's field, and, and there table kept getting more full and more full. And you watch Naomi, who at the end of chapter 1, Naomi who said, I'm empty. And we see her being filled day after day after day after day. Being filled by Boaz's steadfast love and kindness filled through Ruth's, Ruth's steadfast love and faithfulness and ultimately through God's steadfast love and faithfulness. And that's why it ends the way it does. It says, and she lived with her mother-in-law. And you think, yeah, why? that's kind of a random detail to throw in there. Why just throw that in at the end? But it's, it's showing that Ruth kept her word. Ruth told Naomi, where you go, I go. Where you live, I will live. And so Ruth didn't just go, hey, look at all this blessing I've got. I'm, see ya. She stayed with Naomi. She stayed there. She kept working. She kept pouring out blessing on her day after day after day for a couple of months. And it showed Boaz's kindness, Ruth's kindness, and God's kindness. And again, 
I just, as I worked on this this week, I thought this is just a reminder that we don't always see things as accurately as we think we do, right? I mean, Naomi thought she had nothing and no hope in Bethlehem, and now she's sitting here with barley piling up to the ceiling each and every day for two months. And it's easy. I mean, it's easy for, for all of us to, to go through life and, and to just get frustrated with what we see going on around us, to get caught up in the moment, to get down in the dumps, to look around and only see the, the enemies or only see the difficulties or only see the hurdles we have to jump over and just to think we're alone and we're empty and that there's no hope. It's easy to just kind of spiral down into that. Um, But stories like this remind us that most likely we're not quite seeing things as accurately as we think. Naomi thought she was without hope when she came back to Bethlehem, and she was wrong. Our family thought our house would never sell and we'll never find a house, and we were flat out wrong. And God blessed us more than we would have imagined. Same with Naomi. God just blessed her way more than she ever imagined. It was interesting, I was reading, John Piper has a good quote about this, and he's talking about Naomi back in chapter 1, at the point when Naomi says, I'm empty, I have nothing. Um, but But it fits really well with this path, um, with what we're talking about this morning. It says, in fact, Naomi is so oppressed by God's bitter providence in her life that she can't see the signs of hope as they start to appear. She knows there's a God. She knows he's sovereign and rules over the national and personal affairs of men. And she knows that God has dealt bitterly with her. Her life is tragic, right? She knows all of this. She knows God is God. She knows God's in control. And she knows that her life is not how she wants it to be. But what she does not know or what she does not see with the eyes of her heart is that in all of her bitter experiences, God is plotting for her glory. I love that line. God is plotting for her glory. And it's true of all of God's children. In the darkest of our times, God is plotting for our glory. And if we would believe this and remember it, we would not be as blind as Naomi was when God began to reveal his grace. We wouldn't need God to drop a load of barley on our table for us to go, oh, you've been with me all along. And so it's important. It's not not just enough for us to know that God is God. And it's not just enough to know that God is in control, but it's enough to know that God is always working for our good and for his glory, always. Even in the darkest, depressing, frustrating times, he's working and we have no idea what he's doing. Which is also a reminder that God is faithful. That's that's the word, I forget how many times it comes up in the book of Ruth, but God's faithful, steadfast love just keeps coming up over and over and over. And it's a reminder that God's faithful even when we're not faithful. His covenant promise that we see come up over and over in Scripture is, I will be your God, and you will be my people. And that promise isn't going to change. God said, this is my promise to you, and I'm not going anywhere. And so even when we 
break covenant, even when we mess up, even when we do all of that, God's right there. Steadfast love and faithfulness coming and, and guiding us back and putting us back on track. He shows up and he blesses us. And, and as we find out in this passage, sometimes, not always, but sometimes God will show up in those moments and drop a load of blessing on us so much that our eyes are opened and we fall on our knees and we say, first, sorry, I should have seen this. And then second, thank you, Lord, because you are good and your steadfast love and kindness has followed me all the days of my life. Let's come to God in prayer. Father, we are so thankful that you're our God. We're thankful that you're a God who keeps his promises who sticks with us through thick and thin and up and down and through highs and lows. Thank you for being a God who pulls us out of the pit. And Father, we do ask your forgiveness because we often, all of us, often doubt you or get distracted or get blinded to the work that you're doing in the world. And we ask that you would forgive us, but we ask more than that, Lord. We ask you would open our eyes to see Give us hope in the darkness. Give us strength in weakness. And help us to see how you're continuing your steadfast love in each one of our lives. Lord, we want to walk in a way that brings glory and honor to you. We want to rest in you. We want to trust you. We want to hold on to that truth that you, your steadfast love and kindness follow us all the days of our lives. So, Father, open our eyes to do that. And we thank you for being a God we can trust. And all God's people said, Amen.